Hi, I'm Caroline Ramsey. I think Rooted is a great program for anyone to participate in. Um, what I got from Rooted is that it just drew me closer to God. I was able to define who I am as a Christian and, and, and marry that with what we believe as a church. So it was very powerful for me to just learn to tell my story and to know my journey and to hear other people's journey as well. Um, and just to know that I'm not alone in struggles that I've had and the struggles that have defined me and that have helped uh, define me in God's eyes. So I would highly recommend Rooted to you. Um, it's a wonderful program. You should do it and um, just really immerse yourself in the program and just what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it um, and being open and honest and just really learning who you are and learning your place in God's kingdom. Well, we are in this uh, Rooted series. Um, it's really an introduction, uh, as you heard on the announcements, an introduction to the Rooted experience that we're launching in two weeks. Uh, you can sign up today, as of now, you can sign up today uh, to be a part of a Rooted group. And here's the thing is we have a limited amount of groups. And the way that we're doing this as a church is we're rolling this out uh, small and then gaining momentum with it. Uh, we had a group that went through it, as you just saw in the bumper video with Caroline. Uh, Caroline and Todd went through the initial group and will now be leaders of Rooted. Uh, and then the hope is that as some of you go through it, uh, it will be so life-changing for you that you'll want to lead a group uh, in the spring. And so we will grow from there. But in the meantime, in the fall, it's starting out pretty small. So if you want to be a part of a group, you're going to need to get signed up. If you don't get into a group that you wanted to get into, uh, don't leave the church. Just wait a few months, and we'll do another, uh, we'll do another launch in the spring uh, or in the wintertime. So, uh, so we're in this uh, Rooted series, and last week we talked about uh, the first prayer, right? This bold prayer that was prayed in the first church that we found in Acts and, uh, and I hope that you had the opportunity this week to pray that prayer, that, that you join me in praying it, where we just say, Lord, uh, I'm in your hands. I surrender to you. Uh, Lord, will you stretch out your hand and do the miraculous? Will you bring healing and do signs and wonders? Uh, that, that, that we would be praying that prayer on an ongoing basis that God would move and work and give us great boldness uh, in this world that we live in. Uh, I was thinking about, we're going to shift now into what it means to do life together, to be an encouragement to one another in community. And I heard this last week, I was listening to a podcast, I, I, was, I went to Odessa this week to visit our foster church in Odessa and to spend some time with them and work with their leadership team there. And I was listening to a podcast because I drove when you fly, it's really expensive uh, because of the oil fields, and so I drove, which I don't do. I don't anything over two hours. I don't, I don't like that. I, mean, I know. It's first world problem, and I'm a baby, but, but I drove five, almost six hours to Odessa, and so I had a lot of time on my hands, and I was listening to a podcast, and I heard something uh, that intrigued me, and, and I want us to think for a second. Well, we live in a culture right now that is trying to divide us, right? Think about the things that divide us, Facebook, right? That's a, that's a given. That's low-hanging fruit. Politics. Those are, those are easy things where all of a sudden it's like 
we disagree, and so we're, this wedge is driven between us, and now all of a sudden we're, we're, we're not together, we're, we're isolated. Now, we may have camps of people that we agree with, but at the end of the day, we are living in a culture that's trying to divide us, and when we are divided, what happens is we isolate, and we withdraw, and we find ourselves alone. And a study was done about loneliness. Uh, in fact, I, I just found this out. We have some, uh, some family from the UK, and I just found out that in the UK, there's a, a big problem with loneliness, so much so that, uh, that, the, um, that there's a, I don't want to get it right because they're here. So uh, the, there's a minister for loneliness, and I have not I had not heard that until this last week, that, that because there's all these people who are living in isolation, they're shut-ins, that they've actually, their government has made a minister for loneliness to address the loneliness issue in their country. Uh, if we had a minister of loneliness in our country, I'm pretty sure it would be Paul Godin because I don't think that guy's ever been alone in his life <laughs> or ministry of loudness and loneliness. And uh, I don't, I can kid around with him because I drove five and a half hours in a car and I was not lonely. I was, we had conversations. Um, so sometimes people drive us crazy. And, and I didn't mean that in the same sentence as what I just said. But, <laughs> but, but people that we love, they, they drive us crazy. And so we isolate from them. We use that as an excuse to not be in community and relationship with other people. And, and so they did, there was a survey done in America of 2,000 people, and they were doing a study on loneliness uh, across all generations. And I assumed that the study would, would turn out that the older generations, the 70-plus generations, would be the most lonely in our country. And that's because their maybe grandkids have grown and are off to college or they're, you know, outliving their life and uh, their friends are passing. And there's just, they're, all of a sudden, they're finding themselves in this place of loneliness. But actually, the, the study showed the opposite. The study actually showed that those who are older have more connection and more relationship than those in the younger generations. And if you follow the generations down, down to, you know, from the baby boomers to the Gen X to, to the millennials and then Gen Z, they discovered that the Gen Z, Generation Z, are the loneliest people in our country. And yet they're the most connected people in our country. These are our teenagers. These are our college students who are finding themselves isolated and lonely and yet connected digitally. Cal Newport said that the first truly smartphone native generation, meaning a group of students who have known smartphones, enter into college, and as they go into college, they're finding, because colleges and universities have all these statistics on uh, freshmen that are coming in that are depressed, have anxiety, that are fearful of the year of school and all of those things. And so what, what's happened is, is what they found is the first generation of students to come into college as freshmen with smartphones, knowing smartphones, their 
anxiety has gone up by 100%. And they, not me, scholars are saying it's all related to this digital connectivity or this false sense of connectivity. That information is available to us 24-7, available on our phones. We can know everything bad that's going on in the world. And so there's all this anxiety, all of this, this depression that's happening. And, and I give that to you because it does relate to my message a little bit, but I, I give it more to you in the sense that we've got a problem I mean, we think our problem is the things that divide us. No, the problem that we have is this, con- this false connectivity, these smartphones that aren't really helping us. They're actually causing damage in our children. And, and I say that as a parent. I have a smartphone. My kids have smartphones. And, and now, and we, but here's the thing is the reality is, is Everyone else knows this, but the church isn't saying anything about it. Apple gives us screen time to monitor how much our kids are on there. They give us do not disturb. I go to a restaurant, and it says, hey, hey, dummy, don't you want to put it on do not disturb so that, you know, you could actually engage in conversation? I'm like, no, swipe. <laughs> right? I mean, that, that's the reality in which we live, and everybody else knows it's damaging, and yet I think we just continue to perpetuate this problem and this notion that says we don't need community. And being in a rooted experience, a rooted group, is about being in community with one another. And, and so I want us to, uh, I want to talk a little bit about what it looks like to be in community and to have people in our life who are encouraging us in our relationship with God. In the book, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, as we're studying this idea of what it means to be rooted in our relationship with God and, and with the church and, and with our purpose, the book of Acts teaches us how to do that. In, in verse 31 of Acts chapter 4, this isn't going to be up on the screen. None, none of my scriptures are up on the screen today. I'm, I'm giving you cliff notes. I'm giving you broad strokes, and I don't always do that. Um, but the guys were great. They were saying, hey, get us your scriptures, get us your scriptures. I'm like, ah, I don't know which direction I'm going. And then I spent all day trying to change my son's brake pads yesterday with him, and so I didn't get him the scriptures. But in Acts 4.31, it says, After they prayed, they pl- the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God. How? They spoke the word of God boldly. And the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. And all of them that were there, there was no one that was needy. There was no one that went without They brought their money from the sales of their house or their land, and they brought it, and they pooled it together, and they distributed it to anybody that was in need. Uh, Levi from Cyprus was one of the apostles. He he was called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Barnabas sold a field that he owned, and he brings the money to the apostles' feet, and they give him a new name. His name was Joseph, and they give him a new name, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Now, what I'm talking about here, I'm not, if you're getting any sense of, 
I'm going to have to sell everything I own and bring it to the church. Just get that out of your head. That's not where we're going. But this is what the church, the people of God, because it wasn't the building. This is what the people of God naturally looked like when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. When they had the Holy Spirit in them, what they looked like was a people that came together, lived in community, loved each other, took care of the needs of one another. It's not communalism, right, or communism, because the New Testament has always had this idea of private ownership, this private property thing. Think about it in this context. If it was communalism or communism, then everything that then I would think everything that I own belonged to all of you. But if it's a biblical generosity, the shift is everything that I own belongs to him. And I get to be a participant. I get to be a steward of the things that God has given me to be a blessing and to be generous to others. And it's why every time we receive an offering, I always say this is an act of praise. This is a part of our generosity but you've got this guy, Barnabas, who, who goes and sells his land and then brings the money to the church. Now, I want to pause for a second because I want to give you an opportunity to be a part of what we're talking about, to be like the early church. Uh, I was sitting in a council meeting. Uh, we have a church council that oversees all the finances of our church. I was sitting in a council meeting, and I had... Uh, Uh, We we were addressing a need. We have a benevolence fund that we fund from the tithe that you all give to the church. We all give to the church. And so we have funds in there, and every now and then a need comes up, and we try to meet that need and help out with that need. And in one of these conversations, a council member said to me, he said, why don't we ever bring, like, the needs to the church? And I said, well, you know, depending on the need, we want to, you know, we want to take care of people's privacy. We don't want to shame anyone or something along those lines. But the response was, yeah, but, but if we don't partner together and share in the, in the shared needs of our church, then we aren't really community. We aren't really family. We're just kind of, we're just delegating a group of people to do that. And so we have a need in our church. And Uh, this need is a different kind of need. We're looking for someone or or we're looking for a couple to provide a room uh, for three months for a single mom. And uh, she doesn't have her child every week. It's every other week. Um, But the child would be in the home as well. And, And I don't want to go into all the details for the reasons I just stated. But this is a need. And I thought, you know, there may be some, someone here who, who has an extra room or has a, a place or something that could meet that need that I would never know about if I never brought it to our church family. And so this is not intended to be any sort of guilt or anything along those lines, but it is intended to just say, if the early church functioned in a way in which they were collectively helping those who were in need, could we be like the early church? I'll tell you that there's a few that have come to me in first service, um, but I don't, don't want to make any sort of decision until I put the need out to our entire church family. And, and then we'll work on what fits best for work and uh, vehicle and all of that stuff. Uh, she has a car, uh, has a job, and you'll just have to trust me on that this is something that as a church family we get to, we get to be a huge blessing for. So 
That's how the early church functioned. I think if that's in our DNA as a church, I think that we could function that way as well. So Luke in Acts, he tells us this story, and this story is so startling that if you haven't read the Bible before, you might freak out a little bit. This might scare you. Uh, you, you might even think uh, there's no way that God could be loving and, uh, and this story be true. But it really just confirms for us how true God's word is because only God would tell you this story because it, it makes us think it probably shouldn't be in there. Like maybe somebody should have omitted this story. This story is so crazy, but for those who feel that maybe you haven't gone to church or haven't been to the church because the church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites, then you'll be pleased to know that God doesn't like the fact that maybe the church is filled with hypocrites either. That that's not really his plan and his process for the church. For the rest of us, what it does is it shows us that the greatest danger to building an authentic community where we're actually encouraging one another, spending time with each other, and loving on each other is in Acts chapter 5 where this story is told. And I'm going to tell it to you. It's about 11 verses. So I'm just going to, I'm going to give it to you uh, just about how it's written so you can follow along if you'd like, if you have your Bibles with you. But there's this couple, uh, Ananias and Sapphira. And they... They've seen this guy Barnabas who sold his property, brings it to the church, and uses it to help meet the needs of the community, and he gets a new name. And they're thinking to themselves, I want to be like that. And it's understandable. The guy's name's Ananias. If your name's Ananias, I apologize in advance. But I could understand why you might want a new name. It's hard to say, Ananias. So, Ananias and Sapphira, they're plotting with each other, and they're thinking, hey, we've got a piece of property. Let's sell our property, and, and we'll, we'll tell the church that this is what we sold it for, but then we'll, but then we'll keep the rest. So as an example uh, in this story, let's just say that they have the piece of property, and they sell it for $50,000. But then they come to the church, and they're saying, hey, we have this property. Uh, we sold it for $30,000, and we just want to give all $30,000 to the church. And we want a new name. Mr. and Mrs. Wonderful is like on our brains or awesomeness, something along those lines. But, but we want to be acknowledged as generous people. We want to be seen as someone who is sacrificial, seen as someone who is generous, See, the problem is, is they don't want to be sacrificial. They don't want to be generous. They just want to be seen as that. They just want the label. Barnabas got a label that said he was uh, a son of encouragement. And they're like, we want a label of, you know, masters of generosity. And, and the reality is, is, is $20,000 in a gift like that is an amazingly generous gift. The problem wasn't the gift. The problem was they were pretending. They were pretending to be something that they weren't. They were, they were well, pretending is what my kids say when they lie. Uh, they, I wasn't lying. I was just pretending. It was just saying this is a joke. 
Let's just pretend, right? Your kids do the same thing. You do the same thing. We do this. We downplay a lie, and we say, oh, I was just pretending. <laughs> I wasn't serious. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, they started hearing this whisper in their ear. People will call you great. You will be wonderful. You'll be Mr. and Mrs. Awesomeness. The church will call you blessed and they'll give you everything that you want. And Ananias and Sapphira chose to believe Satan. And Peter says that you are filled with Satan. Peter can recognize a lie uh, because he's had his few share, you know, uh, his share of that. They come in, uh, not they, Ananias comes into Peter, the husband. Or, or excuse me, Ananias, the husband, comes into Peter, and he says, hey, we've sold this piece of land, and here's all the money that we have. Now give me my nickname. He's, ready, he's not ready for what's about to happen because Peter says, why have you let Satan fill your heart? Which, if, if you're new to all of this, that's not what you want to hear from anyone. Peter says to Ananias, you don't need to do this. The, the land belonged to you. You don't need to sell it. You don't, even, you, you don't need to, to bring us the money. The money's yours. You could have given just a percentage of it. That would have been great. But the problem is, is that you're lying. You're pretending to be something that you're not. And in that moment, Ananias drops dead. If you're ever looking for a passage of scripture for your children about lying, it's Acts chapter 5. Like, son, you know what happens when you lie? Let's just flip through Acts chapter 5 and just, let's just see what happens. Three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, comes in and she's like, she pokes her head in the door. Hey, is my husband around? I'm looking for Ananias. He was supposed to bring some money to you. I'm wondering if she's thinking maybe you ran with the money. But she pokes her head and says, he's supposed to bring all the money from the sale of our, of our land. Did he bring that to you? And, and, and Peter's going, don't. Don't do that. Don't, don't say that. And she's going, no, it's the truth. All the money, it's all there. Count it. And Peter goes, you see those guys over there? See the shovels in their hand? They just got done burying your husband. And immediately she's struck dead. This is a horrible story. Try, try to explain that to your friends that don't know Jesus. Try to explain that to your friends that do know Jesus. Hey, I just want to tell you this great story in the New Testament about how God loves people. Let's turn to Acts chapter 5. I want to tell you this story about how God forgives people and it doesn't matter what you've done. Uh, see, pretending, image management, the biggest threat to a life of encouragement, to being in community with other people, the biggest threat is pretending. It's trying to give off an image that's not true. Acting like you're better than you are. It's it's wanting something without being that. 
has a sense of, of not telling the truth, not being honest with who you are. It's, it's trying to manage your image in front of people. If you want to know the thing that absolutely destroys community, it's pretending to be something that you're not. Think about it in Genesis chapter 3. You've got Adam and Eve in the garden. They've sinned. And what's the first response? To go and hide and to cover themselves up, to make it look like everything's okay. But the reality is, is I think that we exist in the church oftentimes with fig leaves as well. See, the best way to hide in the church, the best way to hide from God is by pretending to be good. The only way that we ever have a relationship with God is when we are honest. The first step, the only first step to a relationship with God is, God, I am broken. I'm a sinner. God, I I don't have it all together. There's no more image management. There's no more pretending. It's, It's, God, I need from you what I can't do for myself, and I am surrendering my life to you because I'm a broken person. And listen, image management and pretending to be something that you're not is creeps into all of us. If you think that it doesn't creep into my life having to be someone who stands in front of people week in, week out, coming up with messages that make you laugh or cry, either one of those ends up being a win in my book. Mad is not a win, but cry, yes. Laugh, yes. Those, those are good. It is easy for me to to allow the whispers of the enemy to say you need to perform, you need to be something, you need to be better, you need to be something that you're not. And for all of us in this room, it would be easy for us to say I just need to pretend that I've got it all together. As soon as we're honest, those who confess their sins God is faithful, Scripture says, and he is just, just, and he rushes in with forgiveness and grace and love, and he makes us new. All of us struggle with this pretending. And God is this loving surgeon who begins to cut out, because he loves his church so much, he cuts out this pre-cancerous growth. And he cuts it out and he takes Ananias and Sapphira home. Maybe the hardest question for all of us as we hear this story is, at what point in my life is it better off if I'm not here? When we're pretending, when we're managing our image, when we want to act in a way that we're better than we are, when we're hiding, when we're not willing to to tell the truth. See, we don't have to, to pretend to be in the presence of God. We don't have to act like we have it all together. Let's just have a confession this morning. You guys up for that? Okay, so one of you is. Um, everybody want to hear his confession? <laughs> Just kidding. How many of you 
were on your way, you're, how many of you married couples were on your way to church, and let's just, if you're confessing this morning, you got in an argument, you were frustrated with your spouse, and then you walk through the doors, and you're like, we'll deal with that later, and then you're like, oh, how's it going? God bless you. Right, because because there is this sense of if I don't show that I'm hurting, if I don't show that I'm angry, if I don't show that I'm frustrated, I can just get through this. Let's just get through it. I can manage it for a minute during the greeting break, and you know, it's. I think all of us experience at one time or another this need to pretend to be something that we're not. And here's what happens. The the results of Ananias and Sapphira being struck dead in that moment. You know what the result of that was? Holy fear. Because everybody watching this, all the posers, all the pretenders, all the people that, that weren't all in but maybe just showing up to the meeting, all of a sudden they're like, I don't think I'm gonna go to that meeting tonight. Uh, uh, this isn't going to work for me. And they scattered, the Bible says. They, they went away. But here's the other thing that happened. All of the people who felt like they had to be something that they weren't, all the people who, who felt like if I could just give more or just attend more or just do this more, all of those people came out of the woodwork and flocked to the church because they understood that God loved them for who they were and who they are, not just what they've done. They could just be, they don't have to be more or less, they could just be all that they are. You say, well, why are you telling us this story other than the fact that now I feel guilty about pretending, but I'm telling us this story to contrast this with the life of Barnabas. Because they both did a very similar act. They both did very, something very similar. But in the case of Barnabas, he was not pretending. That was just who he was. And he was given this name, son of encouragement. And he was considered to be a generous person. And, and I want to contrast that with his story. So this guy Barnabas, his, his original name was Joseph. His friends called him probably Jose or something along those lines. Barnabas is called this son of encouragement, and he's just a few weeks old in the faith, meaning that the reality is is he might be a month into a relationship with God, and he's already beginning to step out and understand what it means to be an encourager, what it means to be in community with people. And so he sells, sells this portion of property, or this property is on an island, Cyprus, brings him the money because he recognizes this doesn't belong to me. I'm just a manager of it. A true life of boldness is in the example of a guy like Barnabas. So I'm gonna highlight just some pictures that we see of Barnabas throughout the book of Acts. Luke gives us some glimpses, these these snapshots, if you will, throughout the entire book of who Barnabas is. And to do that, I've got to give you some context. So Barnabas' story is the church is exploding in Jerusalem. And Satan begins to persecute the church. He's, everything's moving like a wildfire. And Satan comes in, and he's like going to throw water on it. But it's really like throwing uh, grease on a fire because it just continues to spread. 
Because it doesn't matter how much you persecute the church, the church will always continue to advance. And so the church is being persecuted, and they literally start killing Christ followers. At the time, these people were called the, the people of the way. And the first person to die to be killed is a martyr named Stephen, and Stephen is being stoned to death. And there happens to be this guy there watching and observing the stoning death of Stephen, and his name is Saul. And at the end of Stephen's life, he says, God, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, which sounds eerily familiar, just like Jesus on the cross and the words that he gave. And so Stephen is killed. Saul uh, ends up being this zealous religious leader, and he really becomes at the top of his game because the The rest of the religious leaders appoint him and commission him to go and persecute the Christians, the the people of the way. And so he he goes and he confiscates their land. He throws them in prison. Uh, Then they give him permission to murder murder these people. It's genocide. And one day on the road to Damascus, and it's recorded in the book of Acts, Paul has this moment where he comes face to face with Jesus. He, he comes face to face with God and, and has a transformational experience on that road. Saul becomes a Christ follower. The, he becomes one of the people that he's been killing. And his name is then, not at that moment, but eventually turned to Paul. And you probably would be more familiar with that. So there's a couple events that happen. But in essence, this Saul character shows up back to Jerusalem and says, hey, I'm a Christ follower. I want to get all the leaders of the way together in one room under one roof. Could you imagine how that must have sounded to all of the leaders of the way? Right? They're like, wait, Saul, the guy who was killing us, wants us all in the same room under one roof. This sounds like a trap. This sounds bad. And there's this guy that comes along. His name is Barnabas. And he hears about this story. And so he approaches Paul or Saul and he asks him to tell him his story. It was very dangerous for him to go because this guy was killing people like him. And he hears the story of how he has this conversion on the road to Damascus and Barnabas believes him. And scripture tells us that he breathes life into him. He encourages him. Barnabas breathes into Saul who becomes Paul. Barnabas uses then his credibility. See, the church, the people of the way, they like Barnabas. They called him the son of encouragement. They gave him a nickname. He's been super generous. He's been a leader in the church. And he uses his credibility, and he puts his arm around Saul, and he brings him before the people and says, you guys, I've just heard this story. He's had this amazing experience in, on his way to Damascus, and they're all standing way over there because they don't want to die. And he says, I believe him. And because he believed him, because he spoke for him, because he stood with him, they, they accepted it. And Paul is this powerful writer, this speaker, and he begins to engage in this public speaking uh, in the square with the religious leaders that he was peers with. And they don't like it. Honestly, they're like, wait a minute, if ever there was a a testimony of the transformational work of God, it's in this person of Paul who used to kill you guys but now is speaking on behalf of your God. And they want him dead. 
Because if, if he gets out there, they know that it's going to be a mess. So they go after him. Saul runs all the way back to Tarsus, where he's from. We don't hear about him for three years. He just goes away. Church continues to be persecuted. Lots of people who lived in Jerusalem uh, that were Christ followers go up north to a city called Antioch. It's the third largest metropolitan at the time. There was Alexandria, there was Rome, and now there's Antioch. And in this, they start a church. And what happens is, is the church of Antioch becomes way larger than the church in Jerusalem. And people are kind of getting freaked out, maybe a little bit jealous, but kind of getting freaked out. And so they need to send somebody to Antioch and find out what in the world's going on up there. So who do you think they sent? A guy named Barnabas, because they trusted him. And they said, if Barnabas goes up there, he'll set them straight if they're out of line, but he'll also give us the truth, and he'll give them the truth and love. And so they send Barnabas, and Barnabas goes, and he starts leading the church. The people ask him to be the pastor, and, and he's encouraging them. And he writes back this message, and he began to speak to the Greeks, also telling them the good news about Jesus. The Lord's hand was with him, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And the news of this reached the people in Jerusalem, and, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, he saw the grace of God was on those people. And he ends up being their pastor. The church goes crazy. It starts growing like a wildfire. And Barnabas goes, I remember this young guy that was such a passionate speaker and writer. He would be great to help me pastor this church. And so he goes to Tarsus and asks Paul to come and lead with him. And they co-pastored the church. And what's amazing is in Antioch, in the very first church, now all of a sudden it's growing. They've got rooted groups. It's just going crazy. Because, and I'm serious. Like They started discipling people. And Paul and Barnabas together, working together, discipling people, raising up leaders. So much so that when it came time, they were like, hey, we can't keep all this to ourselves. We need to spread this message We'll hold down the fort here. We're going to send Paul and Barnabas out, and they sent him on a missionary journey. They took along with him a guy named John Mark, and while he was there, he got homesick, got tired of being with them, and so he quits, and he goes back to Antioch. And they eventually make their way back. They, they raise up more leaders. The church grows, and eventually they're going to go on a second journey. And this time, Barnabas wants to take John Mark with them again, and Paul says, no. He can't go with us. He quit. Quitters always quit. And he can't go with us. He didn't like it. He, was, he wasn't, I mean, let's be honest. He's kind of a crusty guy. He was killing people. Probably has some baggage in his life. He certainly didn't have, in this instance, the grace to give someone a second chance. And so he says no to him. Barnabas says yes and later on, as Paul is in prison, he's writing a letter and he asks for someone to come and visit him. You know who he asked for? John Mark. Did you know that there's some books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Do you know that we would not have Mark if it wasn't for Barnabas giving John Mark a second chance? That that it is something in the encouragement of other believers and seeing something that maybe other people don't see, and coming alongside them. It's not just writing an endorsement. It's not just saying, hey, uh, 
have fun in your walk with Jesus. It's actually coming alongside and saying, I want to walk with you through this. I would have to imagine, and this isn't in the scriptures, but I would have to imagine that when Paul said no to John Mark, Barnabas would have had to have said, what are you talking about? Like You were killing people, and I spoke on your behalf. You went up to Tarsus, you fled while the Christians are being persecuted, and I gave you a second chance and asked for you to come and co-pastor with me. I gave you a second chance. How can you not give him a second chance? Barnabas didn't always get it right. He didn't. But he got it right in this time. And I wonder how many of us look at people and judge people based upon circumstances or experiences and never give them a second chance. How many of us have never put ourselves into positions to even know what's going on in people's lives because we've isolated ourselves and not lived in community to where we could even be an encouragement? You need a Barnabas in your life. You need someone in your life who's going to encourage you because this thing called Christianity, this, which, by the way, the Antioch church is the first instance in which they were referred to as Christians. We have that in common. You need somebody in your life to say, keep going. Run the race. Because this thing called Christianity isn't easy. It's difficult. There's times in which you want to pretend to be something that you're not. And you hear that voice, and you begin to hear it again and again, and you begin to believe it, and all of a sudden you don't enter in, into any sort of real relationship because you have such a facade. It's why we, uh, as our mission statement, have connecting people to real love and real life. We don't want, we don't want people to pretend. I don't want to give, paint some picture of a life that is roses and unicorns. It's rainbows. Rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> I, I, don't want to, I don't want to paint. I, I, what I do want to do is I want to paint a picture that says, God's got something for your life, but you need people around you to fulfill it. We need each other. It's why we have these groups. It's why we have rooted groups. And, and it's our hope to see people in those groups, not put on a facade and pretend that there's something else because we all know what happens when you pretend. Nothing. <laughs> there's, there's no encouragement. There's no life that comes from that. Instead, being willing to be honest and true. Now, I'm not saying air all of your dirty laundry at your rooted group, but I am saying do you have people in your life who you can confide in and share what's going on in your life? We need each other. Let's pray. God, as we look at the contrasting stories here, where on one hand there is this, this immense temptation to pretend to be something that we're not. God, would we be a people who press beyond that, who reject those voices and say, I am going to be who I am for better or for worse, this is who I am, this is where I'm at, and I need people in my life to walk with me. I need people in my life to, to work with me and to show me what it is to be a Christ follower. 
God, would you surround us with people and, and bring people into our life that we trust and that we know that can walk with us in this? God, it's easy. It is so easy to be a poser. Our pride gets in the way. We build this persona up. And God, I pray that we would be a people, we would be a church, that Lifehouse would be a church that would be real, that would be authentic, and be honest about our, our struggles. God, we love you, we surrender to you, we ask, God, that you would continue to do a great work through this church. That you would continue to see lives change. God, I pray for every parent in this room who has the battle and the struggle that is a connectivity without relationship who's struggling with children who are living in isolation. God, could we be good parents? Could we model and speak words of encouragement over our children of what it is to live a Christ-like life? As parents, could we model for our children what it is to have peers, friends who are walking with us in this thing called the way, in this thing called Christianity? And God, would would you just give us the strength to navigate this time in a world like none other before it? Would you give us the strength to love our kids well and to teach them well what it is to be connected, not, not just in relationship with each other, but in relationship with you? In Jesus' name, amen.